Hi, I'm Meredith. Hi, I'm Joseph, and you are listening to Are You Waiting for Permission? It's a podcast for those who don't want to wait any longer. Uh, Good morning. Good morning, Joseph Bennett. (laughs) It is always a delight to see your face. I said when we got on Zoom the first time this morning, I said he looked sun-kissed, and he's like, what? It's been raining for like two weeks. Raining and cloudy for weeks here in Mexico. I love that we start every podcast with just giggling at and with and in spite of each other. <laughs> yes, it, it, it brings me much joy to have a giggle with you first thing in the morning or afternoon, I should say, at this point. Mm. Um, but I'm su- I have to say I'm super excited about our guest today. I'm excited every time we have a guest, but this one I know very well. Uh, We went to graduate school together and we have been performing in a group called Playback Theater West with each other for the last decade plus. And Kirsten Wilson is a force of nature and she is an incredible human being who has done incredibly important work with uh, her team and collaborators to bring marginalized voices to the forefront so that their stories can be heard. And uh, so to get this interview started, what I would like to do is read uh, the mission statement of MODIS so that you, the listeners, have a little bit more context for the kind of work that Kirsten does. And then we will move into this amazing uh, conversation that is about to unfold. So the mission of MODIS Theater is to create original theater to facilitate dialogue on critical issues of our time. We aim to use the power of art to build alliances across diverse segments of our community and country. Storytelling is at the heart of what makes us human, and we focus on bringing marginalized voices or silenced histories to the stage. We support inclusion by expanding our audience's experience of the variety of stories that make our country. By using theater to learn and listen across the gaps of the difference that we weave tighter, stronger, and more connected communities. We hope you will gather around the fire with us like we are today on this podcast to share your stories and learn new ones. And that is Modus Theater. Hi, Kirsten. Applauso, applauso. Let us applaud this guest. Yes. Yeah, I I get inspired by what we do all the time. So thank you for reading it to me. Like, oh, yeah, I love that. I should do that. (laughs) I think you do do that. that. I do, but... Can we start with a random question? Kirsten, can you tell us what is your favorite aisle in the grocery store? And then, Meredith, I'm jumping to you to answer the same question. Mm. What What aisle do you love to go down and be curious about the grocery store? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. I think the aisle I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, kill my vegetarian friends. I think my favorite aisle is probably the the meat aisle. And the reason I say that is, um, so I have an autoimmune disorder, and I can't eat hardly anything. Like I can't eat corn, sugar, nuts, seeds, mm. nightshades, gluten, dairy, like. Uh, and vegetables are awesome. So I spend the most time in the vegetable aisle. I actually don't eat that much meat, but meat is something that is like sugar. Like I can't eat sugar. And so it's the treatiest thing. Um, Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. for me in the sense of it's, you know, I, my body is hunger for the nutrients that this animal has put together in their body that I can't actually put together. So I feel really grateful to be able to actually, um, strengthened by the, the work of another animal. And as a result, I, I, I buy local and grass fed. So I'm not very often in the meat. I'm, I'm, I'm more local than that, but I would say that's the time where I'm like, Oh, I can have what I want versus mm -hmm. a little bit that in coffee, coffee. Mm -hmm. That's the other, you know, but most coffee in grocery stores is not that good. So I, mm -mm. wow. Uh, Thank you for that answer. Meredith, same question. Yeah, that is a great question. I am a sucker for really amazing packaging and marketing. So I get really sucked into aisles that like the sauces and the spices. Mm. Uh, I really get sucked into that because they tend to be the aisles where, especially in these more like boutique markets where the, the, the labeling and the way they're packaged really jumps out at me and then I'm a sucker for it. So I would say that is that those are the aisles that I like to spend the most time in and then I would also have to echo the meat aisle but I don't again I try to do grass-fed and uh but yeah that's there's something about that I'm also that person who tried to be a vegetarian for 20 years and couldn't even wake up in the morning it just I was I just I need to function with it mm. I function only with it so yeah all right, that's it. You, for Joseph, me, have to answer this question now. As for me, I'm not nearly as interesting as the two of you. The part, so I live in Mexico, and we have like big grocery, like we have one big grocery store where you can buy refrigerators, you can buy everything in one grocery store. And my favorite aisle is where I can buy socks. <laughs> Like, I'm always checking out, like, do they have new designs? Is there something colorful? Is there something wacky? I'm not much of a foodie. Um, so I like the sock. Okay. Aisle. It kind of reminds me of some story that I read when I was a kid about that man who kept taking this, like the wife would take the, the, the yarn from the man's sweater and made socks to trade it for cheese. Right. Yep. <laughs> That's the story mm -hmm. that just popped in my head when you said socks in the grocery store. Well, you so, told a story a couple of weeks ago on a podcast where when you would have a bad audition that you would go and buy yourself. I would go socks. buy socks, really colorful Same socks. Thing. It made me feel good. Yes. Okay. I love that. We You've remember these here things. first, Kirsten. <laughs> Kirsten. Now, thanks for the thanks for the sock secret. I had no like you know clue that my life sucked so bad because <laughs> I don't underappreciate it. So, Kirsten, what I would love to start with is I feel fortunate because I I I was at the I believe the inception of of Modus. I saw you with Rock's Karma Arrows, which was something that you you uh, created in graduate school. And, and then some, and then this, the modus I feel over time birthed from this place. I'm curious if you could talk into the birth of modus <clears throat> and what you started off wanting it to be and where it is now. Uh, uh, so I've spent the majority of my life, um, except for a, a short stint at the New York times as a photo researcher, I have made my living teaching autobiographical monologue classes. So, um, and in those classes, you explore the history of your life, the history of your body. And why I find them so satisfying is not only do you create great art when you courageously look at, um, you know, kind of the details of the bones and how you've come into being in your life and your history, but you 
clear up the shadows that are that are moving your life that are running your life and you don't know they're moving your life because you're 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 moving around the stories of who you are that that weigh you down that terrorize you and so your life you don't realize it is is patterned in a way to avoid getting stuck or going into those places again to try to heal them either option but what i found through the monologue workshops is that um people's if you can digest your history, you're not operating out of it and it's more present and you can be aware of the ghosts and the demons in the room and you can make different choices. Mm -hmm. And so modus really comes out of this spirit of like, oh, could we do that as a, a city and as a county and then now as a country? If we look at our untold history and the, and the stories that are, 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 are actually moving us that come out of that, that history and in that sense, the silence histories, the histories that have been moved to the margin or the stories that have been moved to the margin, that if they were at the center would disrupt the status quo, either the history or the marginalized stories of the present would disrupt the status quo. And that would be a great gift to everyone because actually um, uh, working within fields of white supremacy and, and um, oppressive economic structures and misogyny and homophobia, all these things that are operating are not actually serving life. Um, uh, they, they continue to put you or your children in the next possible line of being dehumanized if they don't, you don't fit in in a, a certain way in relationship to feeding um, the oppressive system. So I thought like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could tell the history of our city through the lens of race and class and know that marginalized history so that we could come to terms with it to create a, you know, a just and more equitable future. Um, so let's go into, um, I'm 54 and so Joseph Campbell was the hottest when I was in my early 20s and he had this thing called the hero's journey and you go into, the hero is someone who sort of goes into to, to their hell of some kind learns from that experience and survives to tell the tale and through that the rest of humanity gets to figure out how to negotiate those hells and um, i believe strongly that um, we we need to explore our personal past and our historical past in this country in order to create liberative practices that will actually in in some ways free us all um, but particularly those who are are, are suffering the most in this country in order to keep systems of oppression going. So mm. that's kind of where it comes out of. Oh, that's so amazing. There is so much to unwrap there. But actually, what I got curious about listening to you was, did you grow up with this? Like, was storytelling part of your family? Was it okay to speak the truth around the dinner table? Like, were your parents open about who you are and what you're passionate about? Well, like all true questions and answers, I would say totally yes and totally no um, hmm. uh, in that. So um, uh, I, uh, I barely spoke as a young person. So I come from a, a part of how I came to Modus was dealing with my own history of sexual violence and, and how I negotiated the chaos in my neighborhood and family system, et cetera, um, and finding my own voice through art and through theater eventually um but alongside of that i also um i i come i was born into a a, a family that's a multiracial adoptive family with parents who were uh, 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 
one heterosexual family and then became a gay family. My parents, my mother's a lesbian. And um, um, I come out of a family where people have both um, uh, PhDs and work full time at fast food their entire life and a family that has um, a, a, a kind of severe disabilities, fetal alcohol effect and cerebral palsy and things like that, as well as, you know, huge, um, you know, kind of physical acumens. But I, I've had the privilege of being very proximate to the pain of a lot of oppressive strategies. So, you know, my, you know, one of my black brothers could never make it home without being picked up by the police because he was walking into a mainly white neighborhood. I mean, literally, like every day, it's like, you know, he would be picked up and taken to a police station because they thought he was lying. And so it took a long time to get them to stop harassing him or parents. You know, I watched my gay parents negotiate the, the trauma of like, is someone going to kill my mother? Like, cause she's a lesbian. Like, is someone going to kill her? That's how I felt in the early eighties. Um, like she just may die for that. Um, or watching, you know, what we do to children who, um, don't fit into the educational system as it is, have different acumens, but not, you know, classic. So I grew up with a lot of just standing close to the pain and injustices in which we move and also the loss of opportunity that is in there because we lost the brilliance of a lot of people by not celebrating and seeing who they are, but giving them obstacle after obstacle just to be included within um, the privilege of full citizenship and things like that. So mm. both. I grew up very proximate to the stories I work with right now. How have you taken your own uh, experiences and the way that you have so beautifully used your art to be able to tell your story and come come uh, to a, a good place with it? How have you, what do you do to help facilitate and give permission for other people to tell their story in an environment where they may not feel completely safe or brave? How is that? Yeah, I am awesome. I think the main thing is that um, uh, in the monologue format, I, 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 I offer the practice in these monologue, modus monologue workshops that I um, hold. Um, currently, we work mainly with people on the front lines of violence. So in the last, since modus was founded, my work has been with either undocumented leaders, mainly from Latin America or um, formerly incarcerated leaders um, who are, I identify as black or Afro-Latino. Um, and I, what is allowing me to do that work is, uh, I'm offering what has been salvific for my own life and sanity. And, um, I had to negotiate my own internalized, um, uh, misogyny, my own internalized, uh, racism, my own internalized, uh, uh, despair in order to deal with my trauma. And I was aware that in the process of telling my story and getting to the bone of it, because Modus doesn't do therapy. If you see my, like, these are professional monologues on stage, but if you get to the bone of your experience, like that is what good writing is about. It's about the detail in the bone. Then you speak a, a humanity that everyone regardless of their place can have a relationship to it can be very empowering and i think what has allowed me to to transition that work is i feel really evangelical about what it is to have a sacred container with other people 
And the people in that group, except for me, are all holding a very similar experience and I decenter myself. And so it's really they're leading the group about how to share stories with each other, how to connect, how to write and find safety to go into their personal hells and, and, and explore them and figure out what would be healing for them. And so my knowledge is like, I'm not interested when we come into a modus model, like they have no obligation to tell a story in the public. They have, they have a, they have an only an obligation to show up for their group and to do a family and friends performance for people they invite because you don't know what it's going to be. But my contract is, um, if you tell a story that is personally healing for you, that really gets to the bone of what you've negotiated and gets to the details of it then that story will also heal the society outside. And it's really beautiful in life and profoundly healing when what has most traumatized you, what has been most oppressive becomes your part of your greatest power. And I know I'm that, that that's what the monologue workshop is because I became a human being through the art I created. I, I, I did healing for myself and for my society that was profound. I'm like, oh, I'm going into this hell, but it's not just like to go into just to go into it. I'm going into this hell and I'm I'm realizing the traps in it and the opportunities to get out of it and I'm sharing it. So after those performances, what I found is people would come up to me and be like, you told my story. I feel seen. I feel heard. I feel empowered. And ultimately, I feel completely lovable in my experience. Mm. And I know that my monologuists in this process is will have an opportunity to be with other people who've experienced the same sufferings in different ways that they have. They will heal each other, love up each other, and then they will bring that healing and love into the world in which they're not supposed to be whole, in which they're not supposed to be lovable, in which they're not supposed to actually be the authority of the system. And so that is profound and it's a huge thing, but if I hadn't gone through it, I wouldn't know how dangerous it was, mm -hmm. how important it is to move slowly, how important it is for every person matters more than a performance. If you've ever been part of theater, you know, it's like basically the show must go on, you know, drag your broken ankles and your bloody ass out there and get on the stage. And that is not how modus moves. Mm. It's one yeah. of those things like you are more important than any audience. You are more important. Your, your job is not to sacrifice yourself and heal the world. Your job is to take care of yourself and heal yourself. And if you have something to offer, you're willing to share into the public space, that will be transformative. But just that is profound in terms of how our society moves. Um, so yeah, I just learned so much about it. And that's the only, re I mean, I didn't learn how to do this from doing anything, but treating it on my own body and doing it over years. And so that's what's been helpful. Offering what I've learned is helpful. Yeah, well, I think what I'm hearing you say too, which is profound, and I've heard this, you know, is to not speak. You're giving them this really safe space so that if their wound is still really open and exposed, that they're, you're, they're, no one is saying run out there and share your story from an open wound. No, 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 no. That they're, wouldn't serve them. That yeah. wouldn't serve them, right? So it's mm -hmm. it's like, and which is in, incredibly important, I think, for our listeners to hear that too. For people who do have stories that they want to tell, that there's a, there is it's a process. It's mm -hmm. delicate. It's 
um, not just go out there and, and, and rip your soul open, that really look at that wound and make sure that it's healed enough and that you've processed enough before telling your story, if that is the path that you choose. Yeah, the language I use, Mary, that may be helpful is mm-hmm. the, the stories that are full of, you know, that are most painful in our lives are driving us. Mm-hmm. And it Modus has people write maybe 40 stories and choose one and then work on that. And it's full of trauma support and negotiation. So by the time you get on stage, that story, you're in control of that story. You could tell that story as a tragedy, a comedy, uh, you know, in any direction, because um, you're 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 holding the story as an offering out. It's not like it's bursting from you right. or et cetera. We've it has in the process, but in a safe space. And so mm-hmm. that's part of the process, but it's not part of the you know, the final product output. And it's not that it's not a risk every time, but it's we work really hard at making sure that people are in their bodies as much mm-hmm. as possible um, and that you only go as far as you can go in which it feels empowering and healing to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you, and Kirsten. May I ask, who gave you permission to do this kind of work? Because this is incredibly brave and vulnerable and it's so much beyond yourself right i mean you are affecting communities you are affecting culture who gave you permission to do that um you know that's a really good it's a really good question um i have two answers one is when i was um in art school um I was doing installation art and there was a my photography professor, Meridol Rubenstein, wherever you at in life, um, I, was giving me an A in my photography work and said, You're the work is awesome. I have to give you an A because it's good, you know, we're doing light studies is brilliant. But where are you when you do these photos? Like, you know, where are you when you do these photographs? Like I don't feel you. And I'm like, well, I'm in I go into the woods and it's a great place for light studies and I get out. And she's like, Well, how do you do it? And I say, Well, I'm actually afraid to be alone in the woods. So I actually strategize in advance, figure out a plan so I can get in as as fast as possible, get the angles I want and get out. And she's like, well, oh, well, huh. Where do you feel safe? Maybe you should take photographs there. Like, you know, where do you feel safe, Kirsten? And I said, well, I don't feel safe in my own body. I don't, Mm -hmm. I mean, safety is not a place I live. And she's like, well, maybe you should start there. So um, I, I do believe that in a way she gave me permission to go deeply into who I was and how I became who I was because she recognized an absence that I didn't, kn- I didn't know was absent because I'd never been present, fully present in my work. And so in a way she gave me permission by acknowledging that there was something that was missing. Um, so in some sense, she gave me permission. And on the other hand, as I think with most of us, um, it is, you know, uh, at a certain point in life, we either play the game that we've been rolled, but that role can kill you. And you become aware that like, oh, I am not able to choose life from the role I'm in. And so as a person such as myself, who I think is primarily like people are like, you're the bravest person I know. And I'm like, actually, I'm this person who has more fear than probably anyone you know. 
Everything scares me. I don't like answering the phone. I don't like moving out in the world. I don't like doing anything. As a result, it's all equal to me. And so the thing I'm most afraid of is losing my, not enjoying my life. Like, like I have this one life and I get terrified when I find myself losing it. So I have um, gone from the top pre-med student in college to an English major because I actually needed to understand stories. I quit a well-paying job at the New York Times because ultimately it's like it wasn't going to help me. Um, excuse me. Um, I, you know, I had a kid on my own. Like I've done things because I was more afraid of what would happen if I stuck to the other plan. And so often I feel like for me, giving myself permission or getting permission is setting the stakes up. You, you know, you can choose life as they say, or death. Which one do you want to choose? You know, in the Talmud, they like choose life. This is the direction of life. And that actually is what has given me the, the most permission is like, oh, I think I will die the other way. And so I have to actually choose that direction, even though it seems scary to other people. Trying to do something else feels deadly and I'm terrified of it. What I'm noticing about your photography professor, wherever she is, is that she noticed you. She noticed you weren't present with your life and she invited you to find a safe space. Yeah, isn't that generous? Isn't that just oh, lovely, so lovely, generous. lovely? Mm -hmm. So generous. So when you said there were two people, I just want to be clear. So there was her, the professor, and then was the second person yourself or did I miss that second person? Yeah, I would say it was it was my own. I'm going to actually um, uh, I think I was afraid of of not being able to. I was in a tremendous amount of pain and a tremendous. So um, I think that's ultimately the tension that helps me um, negotiate is is what that pain is. Um, like, for example, I mean, I think in terms of giving permission, like when I decided to have a child on my own and and move in that direction, people like you're so courageous, really, you're going to sign up to be a single mom like that's so scary. And I was like, actually, what's scary for me is I really want a child. And one of the reasons I didn't think I wanted a child until I was in my mid 30s was because my mother had a really hard time with children. You know, she grew up in a time where she had five kids and no support and having children about killed her. And her idea of a bad time was having children. So she let us know that she wished for us a life that we didn't have to take care of children and that we could fulfill our own dreams, which is a painful, complicated gift to give to your child. Mm. Um, and I, her intention was actually true. Like she wanted us to have the life she wasn't able to have because of, you know, time frame. But I confused me and I was aware that if I don't have a child, not only will it be a grief to me because I didn't realize for a long time that I really wanted one because of this narrative that it will destroy me, but I don't know if I'll be able to forgive my mother. And that didn't feel fair to her because it wasn't her intention to, to, just, to, to, to set me off my course. Her intention was to help. And so the fear 
of like, oh, if I don't have a child, I might live my life bitter, which is terrible. Like, oh, bitter people are like, like that's worse. I might be bitter. And I actually may hate my own mother who is actually trying to give me a gift. And that would be really unfair to her because that wasn't her intention. And so then it becomes really clear, oh, I'm giving myself permission to make this the priority of my life because if not, I might hate myself and worse, I might hate someone else who was trying to love me, just didn't do it quite the right way. And so that provides that kind of self-knowledge about the stakes. And if we did that with each other in our families, it's like, oh, I'm going to do this. I want to keep the family together. But if you slowly hate your partner because your partner is not supporting you, like what kind of gift is that? So figuring out what love looks like, self-love or love of other people is complicated and it requires really knowing yourself. Um, and that is how I feel like I give myself permission because the, the stakes are too high. When the stakes get too high, I make a courageous choice and shift. And if I'm not aware of the stakes, I can just keep on the same rut for a long time, to be honest. Well, it sounds like that initial invitation that you got from your photography teacher really helped you get to that place to embody yourself. And that was a, that was a wonderful seed for the, the journey that you were on and are still on. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't think that um, uh, it's uh, teachers have saved my life over and over again. <laughs> and um, seeing each other and see, and you know being seen it you know it uh, pausing and realizing our power to honor people's presence their integrity to see them to ask powerful questions is a huge is a huge gift and um it was yeah it was very profound of her that set me on my journey as a as an artist i didn't go back to graduate school i i kept with art and it's been this this seeking of you know who am i um, and in that seeking of who am I has become a much broader sense of who am I as uh, in my role as a citizen within a country that's built on genocide and slavery. They're all part of the same question, actually, to me. It's just like, who am I and what would it take for me to be present? What would it take for what is brilliant to shine forth? Mm. It breaks my heart to not have life watered and so it can manifest in its full beauty and we work really hard actually in this country to you know that resources move to certain communities and not others and um it's very related to um the same things that are broken within ourselves are related to systemic breaks so if you can if you look deep enough into yourself to heal yourself you probably will find yourself on some side of the relationship between the trauma of of slavery and genocide and misogyny and the key things out of which um, stories move in our, our culture and country. You just said some huge things that I think I'm curious what's one action step we can give a listener right now who is like, I don't even know how to do that. I don't even know where to start to do that. I don't know how to start working on myself so that I can broaden my right like my 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 being my my ability to bring in these stories of other people i can't even share my own so i'm just curious what is one like small action step that you can give our listeners to help them on this path to healing themselves and healing this country and healing the world um you know uh it's hard. I think probably 
the the two tension points in terms of uh, you know um uh, i don't you know i don't know the 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 racial and the age and the systemic location of your audience you have a pretty big audience so i think it's really it's really different um mm -hmm. i think that the most important thing we do in terms of the antidote to trauma um is is different in in, in white people a lot of that trauma is numbness <laughs> um of numb to the histories of betrayal within this country um and for people of color it's to have loved a, a country and worked hard and be betrayed so it's there's we're all in different relationships with that and then we have micro identities so there's no like one but i would say the things that i think are most helpful that have been most helpful to me have been to have a space where i get to be as tender as possible with my own story so if you're a um you know a white cisgendered man with millions of dollars to take some time and reflect on um, how you have felt um, unseen and hurt in your world to be tender with your own story first because if you can't be tender with yourself you're going to be hard ass with other people mm -hmm. you just won't be able to take it in because you've never done it to yourself so everyone needs to figure out how to be tender with their own story no matter where that story is in the relationship is finding spaces where they can be tender, which is really hard. The more you're on the front lines of violence, because you're constantly bracing for the next attack. Mm. Um, but figure out a safe space so you can let your guard down and be tender, whatever that is for you. And some people that is in their room by themselves, naked with nobody home. Like, I don't know where that is or a group. And the other thing that I find is helpful is the more you are part of white dominant power structures, um, the more, and you know, for everyone is to decenter yourself. I spent decades where I only read mainly black women. Um, uh, reading brown women would have been good too. And the, you know, the arc there's different. Um, but at that point I read mainly black women because the more the greater your gap in terms of your 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 humanity not being recognized, the more there is to 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 learn about um, learn from that group. And in this country, black and white have been the polar whiteness was created based on this anti blackness idea. It's, they're both created. But if you learn about what we did to create, you know, what our ideas of blackness were and hear voices from the black women who survived it, I actually think that you learn a lot about our history and our culture and about your own internalized oppression and how you participate in oppressing other people. So decentering, decentering your, yourself and learning from other people. But again, if you're not paying attention and honoring and loving up your own experience, and your own losses and your own, you're not gonna be able to receive the wisdom of that. Everyone's humanity counts. And I think that, um, you know, so being tender with yourself, honoring yourself and your own traumas and stories, and then applying that same tenderness to others, particularly stories you don't know and decentering yourself to learn about other people and how they've been impacted. Who have a different experience than your own is just a tremendous way forward um uh in that in that way wow. and humbling mm, that tenderness is so precious and thank you thank you for giving all of us permission 
to be tender with our stories and tender with our histories. So thank you. And what I know about our listeners is that they're sitting on the the edge of their seat saying, how do I get to study with this woman? <laughs> how can I find her? Can I study with her online? So what can you tell us about what you're offering? Um, well, this is a, a hard thing when you start a, a small arts organization is for, you know, for the first five years of Modus, I, I did everything. And then um, we, we've slowly built up a team um, of staff. But right now I'm not teaching um, to the public. We're hoping to switch that when I say it, it's like we're only working with um, uh, formerly incarcerated um, and undocumented leaders right now. And so that's what we're doing. Um, so the thing that you could do is reach out to the coolest. Um, we're looking for particularly um, some uh, young women, young women of color who've been impacted by incarceral systems, um, carceral systems of any kind to potentially learn this monologue process so that um, and, and you know how to how to facilitate what I've been doing over years, because basically um, uh, in order for me to um, work with more people, we have to have more people on staff who know this process. And so um, if you if you know any super cool, creative um, arts healer, writer kind of folks who want to use storytelling, you can get them in touch with Modus Theater. Um, uh, so that would be helpful. Um, and I hope um, you will come to a Modus Theater performance. Um, we're working, we have one just this weekend that's virtual on Thursday. You won't, uh, this is actually not going to work. But in September, after <laughs> this is a, our next, uh, our <laughs> Thanks formally- Thanks for that teaser. Oh my God, uh, we have this incredible thing coming on Thursday. You're not going to see not it. Invited. You're not going to see it. You're not going to hear this. This is going to go live when? I don't know, but if, if, um, uh, I can edit this part out. We just yeah. say it, and I, maybe we can change up the order in the queue to make sure that it's released before. So I'll do that. Well, in September, we, I mean, the next big performance is um, Modus's theater is doing is with um, uh, women who are formerly incarcerated um, telling their stories on stage. They've been um, working together. I think the stories are going to be... Um, phenomenal i think people are just really confused about how the criminal legal system works and the damage that we're doing to human beings in the name of justice those stories are going to be told on stage um, on sunday september 19th in person in colorado but we have a, a national audience so we'll then do it as a virtual performance i can't, i normally if it was a week or two weeks later so that people can it'll be um some of it pre-recorded and some of it live um, to make sure that people across the country can attend. Uh, so I hope people will, you know, come and, and, and witness this because courage is contagious. And when you see people on stage speaking their truth and um, providing insight into what has only haunted us, like, oh, I, I knew that, but I didn't have the words. And these brilliant women will give you language for what is happening and with you know, kind of getting in touch with their humanity and what's happened to them, you'll get in greater touch with your own humanity and what we can do as a society to work together to create spaces where there's true justice. And as Cornel West says, true justice is what love looks like in public. So you know that with your 
when you're when you're working with someone that you love it's about how can i water this to make change it's not a punishment model it that works and it's mm. it's around profoundly loving each other up so that we can be at our whole whole self as much as possible may Kirsten. i ask you about mm -hmm. self-care so you're doing all of this work and it's freaking really difficult work hearing these stories and this trauma and what people have experienced and what they continue to experience. How do you take care of yourself in the midst of all of that? Because I bet our listeners are sometimes going through some shit too, right, Kirsten? Yeah. And yeah. I want to know what can what you do for self-care and maybe they'll learn from that. Mm. So first of all, that's an awesome, an awesome question. Um, and I would say that that's, um, uh, I would say that's the hardest frontier for myself. Um, what I'm, uh, there's a great um, song called Ella that um, Bernice Johnson Reagan from Sweet Honey in the Rock wrote, which is something like, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. That is a really bad line for those of us doing social justice work and why she's, but the, the message of that at the same time, I, you know, um, is it is, there are folks right now, you know, who are basically being tortured in the name of keeping me and my child safe. Like whether it's in, you know, deportation systems or carceral systems. And so the tension around self-care is really big. And so I'm going to, the thing that has helped me the most is, um, the person who gave me permission is a man named Dr. Vincent Harding, who was Martin Luther King's speechwriter. Uh, and he wrote a, his brilliant work with him on the anti-Vietnam speech that probably, you know, was probably the most controversial speech that King ever wrote. But he said to me once, watching how I was moving with Modus, it's, a, it's not a race, Kirsten, it's a marathon, and we want you in for the long haul. And that was the permission that I needed to start taking care of myself. And self-care for me, and it's different for everybody, is know what, um, what is tender to your nervous system. So for some people that is listening to, you know, music in their headphones and taking a walk and disappearing. For some people that is, you know, yoga exercise. For some people that's an African drumming class. Like it is different, but uh, as Resma Minicum says, the great kind of racial trauma healer, if you if you're not in kind of if you haven't taken care of your own nervous system and regulated it, you're part of the dysregulated violence that's around you. And so we you have to actually take care, put on your own mask first. So I I guess what I do is I have to eat really well. And so I do eat really well. And that's a whole practice. Um, of what it is to invest in me. I have to exercise every day, which is also, that's really hard for me, like all of those things. So what's hard is it's about mothering myself really up. And I think the final frontier for me is um, what it is to be, what is soothing. So that, that's a lot of um, resting in the bodies of people who I love, who are safe for me who really love me. And so I rest in those bodies and I take long walks listening to music that, you know, soothes me and reminds me of who I am and what's important to me. Um, 
and I hold death really close, which sounds really, you wouldn't be, but I have sung to my child every morning since she was born at 14, like at some level to wake her up. And it's because I'm so grateful for her life and who she is. So tuning into to joy wherever you can find it um, uh, is, is extreme. Because if you're gonna do the hard work in life, if you're gonna really show up for yourself and your friends and your community, you've gotta feed yourself with joy. And that's my current, like that's what I'm working on. So what does it look like to dance? What does it look like to curate your own musical playlist to make sure you know, you're tuning into things that give you joy and reminding of how lucky you are. Um, uh, uh, there's a great Wendell Berry says, be joyful though you've considered all the facts. And so you're, you're stepping into that joy. Um, and alongside of that is Thich Nhat Hanh. I, I think of this all the time, like every day you wake up and you are not incarcerated and you have food on the table and you're, no one has hurt your child or your partner and they are sleeping sweetly is a day to get up and dance. And that is really true. So that is the pleasure of holding death and mortality. And, you know, the violence in our culture really close as you're aware of every moment of peace is a freaking miracle and some people don't have it. And so it's just like, wow. Mm -hmm. Just beautiful to tune into it and be like, I'm going to really relish it. So I have the strength in my life to go on being part of spreading this. So other folks have it too, because it is sweet not to be afraid and to enjoy your life and to have food on the table. Sweet. Where can people find you, including your modus work and your podcast work? So uh, you can find us at www.modustheater.org, um, and that's modus, M-O-T-U-S, theater, T-H-E-A-T-E-R.org. There's a few modus theaters, a great one in Italy. Sorry, it's not the right one. We're in Boulder, Colorado. Um, uh, so you can find us there, and you can write us at info at modustheater.org. Um, and there's a lot of um, virtual performances that we do, and you can tune in, get on our newsletter, and you can find out about our podcast, um, uh, where we work with, um, uh, you know, kind of prominent Americans reading the story of our undocumented leaders um, through checking out our website. And, and, and lastly, you can donate money to them. You can support Modus for sure. Yes. Yeah, we're doing awesome work and um, we would love you to be part of that awesome work and um, help us keep moving these stories out there in the community. And, yes, um, please. And so, I just want to thank your listeners before you go, because um, both for listening and um, uh, the other thing I'd like to say besides being true is recognize yourself, all the good things you've done, whether that's a day, like any kindness you did. It's like we don't get seen enough. Some of us get to be on podcast occasionally, but there are so many superheroes at the grocery store who were kind mm -hmm. to their children who showed up at the PTA, who helped a theater company get through a, a crisis this year. Like there's so many amazing people and we're not always recognized. And if you do that, um, it is so kind. The best thing you can do is fall in love with yourself because then you'll spread that love. So I hope you will love yourself up and your survival up because it, it makes you a beacon, a hero in the community to be an antidote of self-love and to share that love by supporting other people and loving them. Mm, I love you, Kirsten Wilson. 
I love you, Meredith Grindag, and lovely to meet you, Jessica. And what I'm asking of Meredith and our listeners right now is to please give you, Kirsten Wilson, a standing ovation. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Are You Waiting for Permission? If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a comment, a review, like us, subscribe, pass it on to a friend. We sure appreciate it. We also want to give a special shout out to High Fiction for letting us use their music in this podcast. All right, have a fantastic week, and we can't wait to find out what brave step you took to give yourself permission to follow your dreams. 